Great and most worthy of praise is our God. Uh, As our worship continues, let's pause and ask for God's help as we gather around his word. Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you stoop to touch us with your grace and mercy through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your life-giving spirit who intercedes for us. We thank you that we can gather in Jesus' name to give you our thanks and praise. And we thank you that as we do this, we're encouraged, uh, but you get glory. Lord, what a mystery. Uh, But we pray as we uh, consider your word now, your living word, uh, that you would speak to all our hearts. Uh, Guide us, we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, thank you again for your warm welcome here this morning. It's good to be back with you here in Moody's Burn. don't know quite what it is. Whenever There's something about the M8 in rain, isn't there? I, I don't know. They just Two things go together like Christmas and Turkey or something. These days are drawing in, aren't they? But uh, good trip across from Edinburgh this morning and good to be with you this morning. Those of you who have uh, long memories or good notes uh, will remember that the visits that I've paid in your, uh, to your fellowship before. We've been looking at the story of Joseph, a fairly well-known story, uh, and this would be our third visit to the story of Joseph. Uh, I noticed Robert Murdoch's coming next week. I think you're getting Moses' story with him. So uh, we're not quite keeping in sync, are we? But uh, we, we should have chatted about this maybe. But um, uh, the first, of course, the Joseph story begins with the story of Joseph and his brothers and his father Jacob. It's not a happy start to the story as we see a family fragmented and distorted in their relationships uh, with uh, jealousies and resentment, a lack of spiritual guidance. And, and the story of Joseph starts off then uh, with his father Jacob uh, in distress and inconsolable with grief. His brothers who thought they were clearing up their lives and getting rid of a problem find themselves guilt-ridden and Joseph himself in slavery in Egypt and we see as the story begins such a need for God to work into the lives of each one of these people uh, the need for forgiveness and repentance to bring about reconciliation and the story then of how God does that in his uh, providence Well, last time we were together, we saw Joseph in Egypt working in Potiphar's home in the service of this high Egyptian official. And we saw the, well, productive, destructive uh, potential when desire and temptation are undisciplined. Uh, Learning that all relationships ultimately have their meaning before God. Um, And although Joseph's character is growing, we see him uh, living a holy life and understanding that what he does isn't just what he does with uh, Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, but every action he does is lived out before God. Nonetheless, he ends up being thrown into an Egyptian prison. Uh, And that's the point at which we're at as our story continues this morning in Genesis chapter 40. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn uh, with me to Genesis 40. Uh, and we'll, I'll pick it up just at the end of 
chapter 39. But we'll read chapter 40 together as Joseph's been languishing now in an Egyptian prison for quite some years. But as the last chapter finishes, there's a little note of hope. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because... The Lord was with him. And actually, that's a repeated statement. It's just a few verses above as well. The Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Couldn't help but think as we were singing that song just a few moments ago. Whom then shall I fear? You never let me go through the high and through the low in Moody's burn or in an Egyptian prison. There is the Lord with Joseph. So our story continues then into chapter 40. Sometime after this, we're going to learn it's over a decade in fact, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh, another title for the king of Egypt, Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. And they continued for some time in custody. One night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison. Each his own dream, each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces cast down today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please, tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As it, soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days Pharaoh will lift up your head 
from you and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Well, may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our hearts this morning. Well, time passes. And as I say, it's not, although we are, it's not indicated here, we can work out from things that are said later that uh, the point at which this uh, strange night happens when these two Egyptian officials have their dreams is, is just about 11 years. So Joseph's been languishing in this prison for a while. Well, the previous chapter that we looked at when Joseph was in the service of Potiphar's house, we saw something of Joseph's character growing and how Joseph was growing in holy living before God. Well, there's something about character being who we are. There's also something about doing uh, the actions that we have and in fact the skills that God grows in us to do the job that God has for us to do. And of chapter 39, I think predominantly we see Joseph growing in character. I think what we see in chapter 40 is that continuing but also something of God adding to Joseph something of Joseph's skill set. He's, he's equipping Joseph for something that he'll have for Joseph to do in years to come. So character meets equipping, being and doing are coming together in this story. Well, through this chapter, again, we're going to focus on Joseph. We're going to look at three moments in which we see things happening in Joseph's uh, character and, and in his actions. But we'll start off, first of all, with just briefly considering the uh, two characters that he meets and cares for in prison, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, really in the first four verses. Well, who are these two characters and what's Joseph doing with them? Well, in fact, they're quite high-ranking Egyptian officials. You know, we might think cupbearer, baker, you know, really how, how important can they be? But the Egyptologists will tell you that these are very high-ranking officials. And in fact, the title that they bear, officials of the king of Egypt, is the same title that Potiphar Joseph's previous master bore. They're, they're all three of them called Saris. They are officials, high officials in the court of the Egyptian king. The chief cupbearer, we might think of as a bit of a butler character, but not any butler. It's not just Jeeves, uh, although a little bit like Jeeves, I suppose, if you know those stories. Um, he's uh, uh, not only the official responsible for royal meals and the, the king's drink, but he also serves a kind of political uh, and priestly function as a, as a counselor to the king. Um, I, I thought about various modern analogies and uh, 
none of them seemed very savory. So I thought, well, it's the day in which we live, you know, with the, with the, now that there is an election approaching. But if you think in terms of kind of high-placed, trusted advisors and project managers, that's actually the kind of remit that the chief cupbearer or this butler to the king had. So a pretty high official. The chief baker, too, wasn't just the winner of the great Egyptian bake-off. Uh, he was a master baker, and the Egyptians had all manner of baked goods. But the chief baker prepared uh, uh, breads and other baked goods not only for the king's table, but also for other palaces and also for temple use. So there's, a, again, a kind of high uh, official status that this um, official has. Well, these two are, are intriguing to us. Um, we, we really want to know what it is they did to offend the king to land them in prison, don't we? We simply aren't told. I think one of the things we want to do when we're reading biblical stories, biblical narrative, is to attend to the things that the storyteller does tell us and not get too curious about the things that they don't tell us. Clearly that's not important. It's not important to know what they did or why it is even that the king of Egypt would restore one and execute the other. We, we just aren't told. There is something else we're supposed to pick up in that. And we'll get to that in due course. But it's important to see, I think, that what they did was in chapter 40 here is what Joseph did not do in chapter 39. Yeah. In chapter 39, verse 9, what we see then is Joseph refusing the advances of his master's wife. How then can I do this wickedness and sin against God? And he uh, did not. Well, although it's a little bit obscured in our translations, what Joseph did not sin against God, what these two officials did do was sin against Pharaoh. Uh, in the ESV that I'm reading, they, it's translated, they committed an offense against their Lord, the king of Egypt. Well, in fact, the Hebrew here is the same word, it's sinned against. Joseph did not sin against his ultimate Lord and Master, against his God, these two officials did sin against their master and they're cast into prison. And Joseph attended them. It's interesting then that if they're on the same status as Potiphar, that all those lessons that Joseph learned in Potiphar's house aren't now for nothing. He's continuing to care for two royal officials just as he cared for another royal official. Ultimately, God will use this. Not in the time and not in the way that Joseph here is wanting God to. But this is all working together in God's purposes. And just before we leave these two royal officials, I'd invite us to think about one simple thing. And it's so simple we might just go past it. And that is that God is at work in an Egyptian prison. It might seem a bit of a stretch for our text, but it invites some reflection that God is at work in prisons. You know, we think of prisons as places, uh, you know, where hard people are, where bad people are, and where bad things continue to happen. But it's not, they are not places beyond God's reach. God still sees. God's arm is not too short to save. And here in prison, he is with Joseph. 
here in prison. He meets both of these officials, the the cupbearer and the baker. Now, maybe reading between the lines, we see in the heart of one something that is repentant for the evil that he did. And there's something about the butler's dream of this miraculous uh, grapes that appear and ripen, and he takes them in his hand and presses them into the king's cup, and it flows wine. There's something quite remarkable about that. There's almost an anticipation of another miraculous issue of wine, isn't there? Uh, In John chapter 2, and Jesus turned water into wine. But it's something quite special, and this one is restored. Uh, but But God's speaking into their lives. And in the life of the baker, it does not lead to his being lifted up. But prison is a place of isolation and estrangement in human terms. And it doesn't differentiate just and unjust prisoners. Once you're in, you're in. And all subject to the same regime. Uh, You know, I was reminded as I was reading this of what um, Jesus said in Matthew 25. When he's describing that situation at final judgment and he separates God separates the peoples as the shepherd separates sheep and goats. And he, sheep's, uh, you, you know what I mean. Thanks for that. Um, and he says to those on his right, to the sheep, um, "Come, blessed by my Father." For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. And as a climax, I was in prison, you came to me. Why did we do this, Lord? Truly, I say, as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And of course, the opposite true of the goat standing on the other side. You didn't do this for me. And they're cast away from God's presence. Of course, Paul himself, oftentimes a prisoner for the Lord, and especially in second letter to Timothy, um, he reflects at the beginning of the book how there were those who came and refreshed him and cared for his needs in prison. And at the end of the book, uh, things have changed, and at his first defense, there was no one to stand with him. What it was for someone to reach out and minister to the prisoner course many prisoners around the world for Jesus' sake. Um, But I passed shots on my way here. I know Dorothy Russell. He's doing a fine work in the prison there and the other others on the chaplaincy team. I know that Jesus is meeting with prisoners in Shots prison. Jesus is meeting with prisoners up and down the land and maybe just this moment as we spend with Joseph in an Egyptian prison this morning will be an encouragement for us to pray for those who are ministering in these hard places and to those who are finding Christ in that darkness. So we see this in the lives of the butler and the baker. Well, a little more briefly than three moments from Joseph's own ministry. We see him growing in character in chapter 40. Uh, in chapter 39. How is he growing and equipping here in chapter 40? Well, again, simple things, but helpful to notice, I think, that in verses 6 and 7, he notices these two men are upset. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled, so he asked them, Why are your faces downcast today? 
Well, why pause just to notice this very simple thing? Well, I think it shows us already what a distance Joseph has come from the Joseph of chapter 37 as the story begins. Remember, we see him there as a teenager, 17 years old, and the first thing we find out about Joseph is that he brings a bad report of his brothers to his father. And you don't get the impression that the 17-year-old Joseph would have either noticed or particularly cared if these men were upset. But Joseph is growing. There's something changing in his life. And he's, he's uh, attentive to their, um, to their uh, moods, to, to their situation and their circumstance. Might be simple then, but I think it's an early sign of Joseph's growing in usefulness. In fact, Joseph's demonstrating, isn't he, the mind that Paul encouraged the Philippians to have, to have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. It's a striking thing. Um, Jacob had two dreams in the Jacob story. Joseph has two dreams in chapter 37. Here, we have two dreams, dreamed by two different individuals, but the dreams come in pairs. And In fact, in the next chapter, in chapter 41, the king of Egypt has two dreams. Did you get the sense there's something going on here? Um, and it's interesting that Joseph's two dreams in chapters 37 were a material cause, his reaction to them and his use of them, of the growing hatred with, between him and his brothers and the estrangement ultimately that came with his father. But now what happens, that in the case of these two dreams, he isn't the, the cause of hatred, but he's the source of counsel as he seeks to address the... Uh, trouble that has, has entered into the lives of these two men through the dreams that they've had in the night. Well, a simple thing then, but we see Joseph attending to the needs of others. I think a second thing we see about Joseph here comes uh, in verse 8 and in the verses that continue. And that is jo Joseph growing and understanding divine direction. And one of the things that was lacking in chapter 37, one of the things we wanted to see from Jacob was some sense that he had of the experience of God's directing him through the dreams that he'd received. But that's, that's absent. But here we have Joseph's coming to the understanding. He's clearly been pondering his own dreams and his own circumstances. Comes out in different ways later in the Joseph story. But here he says, do not interpretations belong to God. Do not interpretations belong to God. The source of Joseph's insight, he understands, is going to be God's because human interpretation is worth nothing. Perhaps this is the thing that he's learned as a result of his own experience since chapter 37, these 10 years, however long, in an Egyptian prison. And as we noted in chapter, when we were studying chapter 37, dreams can be a part of God's providences in our lives, just as God can use anything as a providence in our lives for his guidance. But it, Joseph had a hard time uh, seeing how, what this could mean. Obviously, he'd been thinking about his own dreams and realizing that he just didn't understand. 
and that interpretation belonged to the Lord. But clearly now he does understand this, that God is the source and the goal of these providential disclosures. And we see then him growing in the equipping that he will need for the task God has given him. Joseph doesn't know this yet. He couldn't even imagine it. Well, maybe he could imagine it, but maybe (laughs) tell the king about me, uh, he's going to say in a few moments. But uh, this is going to be one of the uh, gifts and uh, spiritual equipment that God will use in Joseph to bring about the salvation of the world. Uh, In other words, to feed a world that's hungry in a time of famine. And Joseph... Uh, sees these two dreams very different from the ones that he had himself. You know, one of the problems, if you like, with Joseph's dreams is they were a little bit too easy to understand. Do you remember what Jacob said when uh, Joseph reports dream number two? You know, the sun, moon, and the stars, they bowed down to um, me. And Jacob rebuked him. Am I and your mother and your brothers going to bow down to you? Uh, I mean, it just seemed too simple, didn't it? And, of course, what they were all expecting, they could never see what God was going to do through the dream. But God's using it to prepare them. God's still using it to prepare them. These dreams aren't quite like that, though. It's very obvious to these two men that they need divine help if they're going to understand these troubling dreams. It's not just that they... Pizza had gone off. There was something about divine fingerprints on these dreams, and they were troubled by it. But we're not told what they did. We're not told why one of them was restored and why one of them wasn't. But what we are told is that Joseph's interpretations were correct and faithful. In other words, what we're invited to see in Joseph's handling of these dreams is that he's coming to understand divine direction. Of course, in the uh, last verse in the chapter, the two things came about as Joseph has interpreted to them. So we're invited to see that he's being faithful to God's interpretation. He's sensitive to God's speaking. He's he's learning what it is to speak on God's behalf. Uh, And God's growing in him this gift and equipping him for the service that he will render. Anything in this in particular for us? Well, I think, as we might have mentioned again in chapter 37, I think God still is using dreams uh, to speak to his people. This is what Joel said in Joel chapter 2, and Peter picked up in the day of Pentecost. This is still a time, a moment in the life of the Spirit when God uses dreams to direct his people. Um, But a couple things about that. One, I think dreams need to be used with caution. We see how they can go wrong, as they did in chapter 37. Uh, And sometimes dreams can be obscure, even if we feel like God's, God's whispering something to us. But it may be for warning. It may be direction. It may be that there's some sin in our lives that needs to be disclosed and confessed and repented of. Could be that there's some direction that God needs to prepare us for. Uh, And we just need to be ready. We just, it's very hard to know. So then the other thing I would say is that if there are dreams which you think have divine fingerprints, they, they need to be submitted to Scripture. Uh, we need to be patient with them. Joseph was going to be decades before the dreams he first had really bore the fruit that God had for them to bear. And, of course, always helpful to seek pastoral guidance. 
because it's uh, far too easy to strike out in, in wrong directions, I think, if we uh, don't take things carefully and patiently and submit it to Scripture. So we see Joseph attending to the needs of others. We see him growing in understanding divine direction. And the third thing that we see in Joseph's life, perhaps we've been going up, we've been going up, there's a little bump now in verses 14 and 15. And perhaps you noticed it. The uh, cupbearer has this amazing dream. Uh, the interpretation is he's going to be restored in three days. And then rather than simply offering the interpretation, what does Joseph do? Well, he goes on to have P.S. I'll, I'll read it slightly differently this time. This is verses 14 and 15. Only remember me when it's well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into this pit. Me, 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 me. Um, there's, a, there's a comedian named Brian Regan who has a very nice little routine on the me monster. Uh, and there's a little bit of the me monster still here in Joseph, isn't there? And even if his character is growing, we might say, ask the question, well, is he quite ready yet for God to use him? It's clear that Joseph's been reflecting on his time in prison, very much in terms of the events that took him out of uh, his home and brought him to the land of Egypt. Uh, here also, I was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, verse 15. Here also, I've done nothing that they should put me into the pit. Well, it's a prison, but it's a royal prison. The word pit is only used in Genesis when it refers to Joseph's experience of being sold into slavery by his brothers, as it is back in chapter 37. It's clear for him that these two things are very much of a piece in his own mind. I've done nothing to deserve this. He is the innocent sufferer. Well, that's true. He is the innocent sufferer. But in all these providential moments, God is doing something in his life. It's just as we said about God is at work in, in prisons. It, God's work doesn't stop when things are going bad. And then to think again of those words of that song, You never let me go through the calm and through the storm. You never let me go through the highs and through the lows. Do we really mean it? Um, and rather than Joseph understand that God's still at work, God's here, um, get me out of here. He's not quite yet ready to him, submit himself to God's purpose for his life. We'll come to see that he does embrace this, but he's not at that situation now. Eleven years since his dreams, he's been enslaved and imprisoned the whole time. And uh, as the psalmist says, Psalm 105 reflects on Joseph's experience and said, The word of the Lord tested him. And again, there is a very clear thing here. We've sung about it already this morning. We're thinking about it again now. Uh, what our response is to hardship says quite a lot about our relationship to the Lord. Especially when one considers how often this happens in Scripture. Many, many times. Just a couple of examples. Moses, 
commissioned to lead God's people. He wants to save his people. And what happens? He ends up fleeing into the wilderness where he spends how many years? Forty. Forty years in the wilderness. Doing what? Well, learning to be the leader that God wants him to be. Or the Apostle Paul, his world turned absolutely upside down. And then what happens? He meets Jesus, the risen Lord, on the road, like one born out of time. And what happens to him? Spends years in the desert in Arabia. Doing what? Being prepared to be the apostle that God's called him to be. And the most, of course, important example of all, the Lord Jesus himself who uh, left the heavenly throne and was born in a humble estate, born uh, to a virgin and suffered under Pontius Pilate as the creed has it. The writer to the Hebrews reflects at length on what Jesus went through and Jesus' own response to hardship. And, and he talks about how the, the father, in a sense, trained the son. It's, it's mysterious language. But in Hebrews chapter 2, Verse uh, 9 and 10, it was fitting that he, that is God, the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, many children to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Perfect through suffering. It's for us so counterintuitive and so countercultural. And again, towards the end of the book of Hebrews, uh, the writer states, uh, encourages the believers that he's writing with these words, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. You know, how we respond to hardship in the presence of God says a lot about our relationship to God. And I think there's a strong encouragement here to see hardships as an opportunity to taste the depths of God's sovereignty. And there, there is something God-glorifying, isn't there? Um, I'm sure you know people. I can think of people who've gone through great suffering, not, not a bit merited, uh, great hardships, but with such a grace and with such an awareness of God's presence with them in these hard moments, through the lows, that God is glorified and his people are encouraged. That's not where God's going to leave them. It's not where God's going to leave you. Ultimately, God has a purpose for these things, and I think that's the great blessing for us as believers who see that God's hand is at work in these circumstances of our lives, to know that God is equipping us uh, and fitting us to be joyful in his presence. Well, um, one could reflect on these things uh, much longer. But let's be encouraged as we look to Joseph to see that God is at work in many places, in every place. Uh, even in those dark places where we might not think, how can God be at work here? He is. He is at work even in the dark places. And as we look at Joseph, so encouraging to see him growing, isn't it? So encouraging as you look around your brothers and sisters in this fellowship and say, oh, it's good to see them growing. Um, and let's not be surprised if there are flaws left, if there's a bit of the me monster, God's working on that. Because what he says to Joseph is, Joseph, 
two more years. Joseph doesn't know this, but I'm not, not finished with you yet. We're not the finished article. Joseph wasn't the finished article, but God's continuing to grow his character and his usefulness for kingdom purpose in him. And so let us too grow in godliness. Be ready to be used, even as we are, with our flaws in kingdom service. And let us live hopefully that God will bring to completion the good work that he's begun in us. And let's do that with thanksgiving in our hearts. Let's pray. Now we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have given us in Christ every good gift that is needed, everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Help us then to be those who are growing in all those gifts and fruit of your spirit, which mean that we will be useful for your kingdom's sake. And we thank you for the assurance that you are a trustworthy God. Uh, Through the highs, through the lows, through the calm and through the storm, you remain Lord and you never let us go. Lord, may we know the truth of that in our lives today and in the weeks that come. We pray through Jesus Christ our Lord and for your glory's sake. Amen.